Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Hey listeners, Daniel here. Over the past few years, through my work with a handful of direct-to-consumer brands, I've gotten a front row seat for different retention strategies. Email and SMS campaigns, discount blasts, you name it. Very few brands are taking the time to set up effective loyalty referral and membership programs. That's why you should consider using Rebo. Rebo is my favorite retention platform for Shopify stores, powering over 7,000 stores, including Hexclad, Outer Isle, and Rareform. Rebo increases your brand's repeat purchase by 20% or more through loyalty, referral, and membership programs. I've spent time with Stuart, Rebo's CEO personally, and I can guarantee you using Rebo will empower you to seamlessly set up effective loyalty and membership programs with minimal effort. If you're interested in giving Rebo a try, sign up for a demo on Rebo.io or email Stuart at Rebo.io. That's S-T-U-A-R-T at Rebo.io. I can guarantee you, you won't regret unlocking a new level of retention. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I drink AG1 first thing in the morning. It's the very first thing I put in my body before anything else. I personally love drinking it with fresh squeezed lemon juice. It makes me feel ready to take on my day. It's my personal start button and my body craves it daily. It has become an absolute staple in my routine. I originally gave AG1 a try because I was so tired of taking all these different supplements and I needed something simple that I could stick to. It's a routine that stays with me no matter where I go. The travel packs make it so easy and allow me to feel grounded no matter where I am. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash STW. That's drinkag1.com slash STW. Check it out. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Alyssa Marshall, co-founder of Maman. Maman started as an independent Soho cafe and bakery in October 2014 and is now a leading lifestyle brand that boasts cafes across New York City, Montreal, and Toronto. Maman offers a selection of delicious baked goods, coffee, fresh breakfast, and lunch options, and seated lunch, brunch, and a full bar at selected locations. They serve a broad menu of hearty farm fresh salads, quiches, sandwiches, and of course, pastries and sweets. You can't leave without trying their famous nutty chocolate chip cookie, named one of Oprah's favorite things for 2017. Maman is one of my go-tos in New York, and if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend. Alisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here chatting with you guys. So excited to be chatting with you. So... We are both such big fans of Maman. What started out in 2014 as, you know, a cafe in Soho, now 30 plus locations all over the country. Please take us back to kind of like, what's what was this initial idea for you in, in starting this cafe? Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, it really came out of a lot of passion um, for a multitude of things. I think I, you know, was in my early 20s. I was in that moment of like, what do I want to do as a career? What do I want to do for the rest of my life? And I really found that I was 
loving doing a multitude of things. Everything from, you know, I studied fashion design thinking I was going to be going that route then transferred into, you know, fashion merchandising, marketing, business. I was an avid baker um, from my mother and my grandmother. And so started a side gig of a, a cupcake and baking company on the side doing catering. Um, fell into event planning, loved that. So basically my I, I had my nine to five in fashion PR. I was um, baking during the evenings, catering, you know, everything from weddings to birthdays and so forth. And then uh, because I can just never be bored, I um, wanted to learn more about event planning. So I, I started uh, interning with a wedding planner and my weekends were just basically full of that. So I really had such a passion for a multitude of things. And I, I genuinely loved them all. And I just was in a position where I felt like I was doing everything, but giving like 20% to different things. Um, I then fell into interior design. I, I toyed into that industry as well, taking some, you know, some small courses here and there and doing some projects. And then I was looking for the job that fulfilled all my needs, um, you know, I, I think personally and, and financially. And of course, it didn't exist. So I was kind of at the point where I, I knew that I had to create it because I, you know, I'm a, a huge believer of enjoying what you do and waking up every morning uh, with a passion and genuinely loving it. So um, I knew I had to kind of create that that world for myself. And fortunately, uh, other people liked it too. So our first cafe, I, you know, my, my husband now, a boyfriend at the time was a, a corporate lawyer and he was really in the same predicament as myself. He was, you know, not wanting to do that nine to five gig as, you know, as, as so many kind of get worn out and tired about. So um, we, we both really ended up kind of pursuing our passions just as a side project. We both had, you know, full-time jobs as we were, you know, building Mama. And even when we opened up our first location, um, and from there, you know, we were very fortunate. It was so well received by, by everyone here in New York that it really kind of snowballed into something much bigger than I ever imagined it to be. Love it. Um, I guess the question I have that I was thinking about before this conversation, I had very little experience ever thinking about a menu or the launch of like a restaurant and all the you know hard work that goes into planning for that for that first unit. Um, I guess how were you thinking about the menu and, and kind of the style that you wanted for Maman? And like, I guess there's that balance of kind of wanting to be on trend, maybe with like health and wellness and, and certain kind of consumer trends, while also like obviously trying to drive a lot of differentiation when you're in a city like New York, that's obviously extremely competitive in terms of hospitality and, and restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a huge approach to it going into it. I think, you know, looking at it in two different perspectives, firstly, looking at the menu side of things um, for us, you know, we didn't want to be too cliche French. Um, my husband is from the South of France and we really wanted you know to have a little bit more of that Mediterranean vibe to it. Yet at the same time, kind of offering, Dish, dishes for Americans so it's you know it's a difficult kind of predicament sometimes we're in saying like you're a French cafe yet our number one selling item is a nutty chocolate chip cookie and number two is a avocado toast so it's uh mm -hmm. we, you know over time our menu has has really evolved um to try and you know appeal to the the, the needs and the wants of our customer base and um, I, I think when we started it it was it was definitely a little bit more 
French inspired. Uh, we had a lot of like more unique Southern French dishes on the menu. Um, you know, for example, some like unique flans and tarts and the uh, pisaladière, which, you know, is, is a like a caramelized onion flatbread that it kind of put us into a little bit too much of, of a niche. So we, at that point, really kind of expanded our menu. And, and now our approach is kind of a melding of the two cultures from a cuisine perspective. And what we also love to do is really play with a fusion of French technique with an American flavor palette. So for example, one of my favorite items on the menu is our our Oreo cookie. Um, and our, we have a French pastry chef. I'm no longer baking. I probably baked for like the first six months until I'm like, I, I can't do this anymore. And we hired someone who's uh, 10 times more talented than I will ever be in the kitchen. And our pastry chef is from the north of France. And he, um, you know, is, is incredibly talented. So it's really fun to kind of work with him now and give him some of you know, a, a flavor profile like an Oreo, but like make this delicious, you know, make this the French way. So he does that salted chocolate cookie with a white chocolate ganache filling um, and really kind of like elevate some of the more traditional American like palettes and profiles. Yeah. And then when it comes, yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say hot take, like we'll, I guess we'll never have Levain on, but, but I do think the cookie is literally the best cookie in New York city. Um, ah. So I, I have to agree. <laughs> I'll go out on the record and say that. Um, well, thank you for that. Um, I'm curious, like, as you guys have expanded and we'll get into, you know, when was the right time for expansion, but but particularly talking about your menu crafting, how have you guys kept the integrity of these flavors with, like, this pastry chef as well as the rest of your, you know, staff as you've expanded? Because as we all know, like, it's really easy to create like one amazing cookie or one amazing cupcake or one amazing tart, but it's a lot harder to create thousands and thousands of them. Absolutely. And, and we learned that probably after about our fourth location, um, when we would kind of personally, you know, go to each of the different stores and, and try our cookie and they were all different at all the different locations. And I think, you know, if you have a recipe and if I have a recipe and we both make the same recipe, it's never going to turn out identical. So that was one thing that we really found to be a challenge. So, um, you know, in our business, the solution to that then became uh, starting opening up a commissary kitchen. Um, so not only does that kind of allow us to maintain the the quality of the product, the consistency of the product, um, you know, I, I think from a financial perspective, you know, it really helps uh, in the sense of, you know, equipment, we don't need these huge mixers and ovens and, you know, all the equipment we would need in all the locations. So when we opened up our commissary, we saw definitely like future plans of expansion. Um, and it it really kind of, you know, I think logistically, it's definitely a little bit more complex, but from a product standpoint and, uh, and an expansion side of things, it, that was kind of our, our key to success was, was having that commissary where we could just have one pastry chef instead of four pastry chefs in each location and one set of amazing industrial equipment instead of, you know, huge build outs for all of our locations. As I realize summer is officially over, I'm trying to create daily habits that allow me to feel my best. I've been enjoying Wild Way granola as part of my routine. It's made of 100% real ingredients with no added sugars, preservatives, seed oils, or flavorings. It's just a wholesome blend of nuts, seeds, dried fruit, and spices. It's the perfect mix of chewy and crunchy and the best addition to my morning yogurt. Head to Wild Way of Life to grab your bag. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you opened this first location in 2014 in Soho, getting a lot of buzz, getting a lot of buzz. And I believe it was one specific food writer for the New York Times that kind of really hit the propeller button for you guys, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, Scott um, and Grub Street. Yeah. Really kind of put, put us on the map. And and so tell me what that like pivot was like once that hit. Well, you know, I think that's the really cool thing about New York City, too. And, you know, something that we're very fortunate to start a business in New York City is that opportunities can literally be at your doorstep. Whereas if we, you know, opened up in my small town of of Unionville in Canada, where I grew up, you know, you won't necessarily have the, have the same opportunities. So um, we, it was just really totally organic. We had uh, an amazing um, writer, Ciara from uh, Grub Street, who organically just came in one day and tried the cookies. And the next thing you know, there was an article in, I, I believe it was Grub Street. I have to, to go back and, and do my digging. Um, we had an article saying, watch your back, Levin, Mama NYC has the best cookie in New York City. And then the New York Times picked that up and then Eater picked that up. And I was completely oblivious to, to all of this that was happening. And we ended up uh, having lineups literally out the door around the block like that very next day after the article was published and came out. And uh, my husband and myself were working the counter. We were making cookies in the back and people were coming in saying, oh, I'll take six cookies. I'll take a dozen cookies. I want, and everyone just wanted cookies. And we're like, what happened? And of course we sold out because we didn't anticipate this at all. And a customer started yelling at me and got very upset. And he said, I drove an hour. What do you mean you're sold out? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. I'm like, how did you hear about this? And then he pulled up the article on, on his phone and showed me and we're like, oh, all right, I guess we're going to have to be making cookies for the rest of the week and all night long. Um, and that was a really cool opportunity that kind of like kickstarted our business. And that's what I, I love about New York. We also, I, I remember within the second week, we had some editors who lived across the street from Van uh, an editor of Vanity Fair who lived across the street, who just walked in and said, I love this place. What is it? Uh, who owns this? I started chatting with them. They said, can we send a photographer? And next thing you know, we have a three page spread in Vanity Fair magazine. So it was just really cool how these things can kind of, you know, snowball and happen. Just, you know, a, a lot of hard work and then a little bit of luck. Love it. I, I guess the question on my end is, uh, you know, so you have this kind of rush with, with growth in this kind of first unit. I guess at like what point do you feel like is the right time to then start expanding into to two units? And I guess just on, is it, is it kind of like you reach a certain level of unit level profitability and you feel like like the, the model works so you can go, you know, test it in other kind of parts of the city. Um, so yeah, just curious, like how you think about a scaling strategy and I guess getting to kind of profitability. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, for the first like five locations, we just really kind of like self-funded everything that we made really went back into the company in terms of, in terms of growth and, uh, that took, you took about five or six um, locations and, and our commissary kitchen was also really the key element to that um, and the capacity that we could really produce. I think in, in this business model that we set up, you know, we've learned that, you know, the first commissary we built really could only support, you know, working 24 hours could only support about five locations. So on, on that end, we knew 
you know, it was, it was then time to, to definitely like open up another commissary to open up a bigger commissary. Um, but when we went from kind of one to two, it was really just based on demand. I, I think, it, and, and a lot of mistakes that we made as well. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, the customer that was coming into my mom really wanted that sit down experience. And we definitely set ourselves up for more of a to go cafe experience. We had a very small dining room. We only had, you know, let's say I think 15 seats at the time um, and people would come and stay and they loved the vibe. They loved the ambiance. So we also had a very big event business. We were doing tons of baby showers, bridal showers, which, you know, intentionally we, we sought out to do. And I always wanted to kind of get away from the wedding planning and focus on the smaller, more intimate events. And I just found that every inquiry that was coming in was for 30 plus people. So our next New York City location that we ended up opening was our Tribeca location, which was about, um, it's just over 2000 square feet. So it was a little bit more than double the size. It was more of a, a formal sit down model, um, an amazing event space. So it was really kind of like the demand of the customers and where we saw most growth in the company uh, is is what kind of dictated our our second location and opening. Yeah, I'm curious, like, was there, if we dig a bit deeper into the expansion, was there an aha moment when you're like, oh, this is working, you know, like we are going to the moon with this, you know, because I feel like the one to two you're still kind of in like these testing mm-hmm. waters, so to speak. Um, but maybe when when did you realize, wow, let's like let's this is all it. When the editor of Oprah magazine walked in, tried our cookies and put her on the Oprah list, and we saw the orders coming in, we were like, oh god, guys, we gotta uh-huh. we're like we gotta prepare ourselves. We're in for something bigger than we expected. Yeah. Um, and and with that, at what point in terms of timeline here, what point did you turn from just, you know, an in-store four-wall cafe to being able to order certain products of yours D to C? Yeah. So um so our, our first location was Soho. Second location was actually Toronto, which I didn't touch in on yet. Uh Toronto was where I'm from and where I grew up. And um, I always wanted to open up that uh, cafe in Toronto. And um, originally, as mentioned before, that was going to be kind of like the first space we were going to do it. Our current jobs brought us to New York and we kind of had that mentality upon opening is if we can make it in New York, like if we can if we can do it here, let's do it. And I think from a marketing and press and hype standpoint, it's it's much cooler to have a New York City cafe open in Toronto than the other way around. Um, so we decided to do the first one here. Second one was then Toronto. Um, for us, it was, you know, close to home. We were visiting there often. We were kind of, you know, almost living between the two cities. So it was naturally an easy progression for the two. And that came uh, about eight months after our first location. That was in July of 2015. And then December of that same year was when we opened up our second location, which was Tribeca here uh, in in New York. Um, Following that, our Greenpoint location, we then opened up um, with need for more kitchen space. Our Soho and Tribeca location were not um, equipped. And we also, you know, ran into that issue where there was inconsistency in products. There was you know, our, our cost for 
um, for staffing was was huge because we had multiple pastry shops. It wasn't as feasible for them to be running around to all locations. And then we saw a huge influx of orders coming in um, due to, this was back in uh, 2017, due to uh, the getting on the O list. From there, it's actually a, a cool story how our, our next location came to be. We actually were just desperate for kitchen space and we really needed more room to bake. Uh, so our, and bake and, and pack and box and ship because it was the first year that Oprah teamed up with Amazon and started uh, selling, she had her own Amazon page, started selling all of the items through Amazon. So that really, you know, helped kind of create more, more awareness and even more buzz for us. And we just were desperate for space and kitchen. Uh, and we came across our Nomad location, which was a beautiful existing salad bar that was closing down. A friend of ours invited us over there actually to, he, um, he was closing and was selling off all of his kitchen equipment. And we were, you know, we were pinching pennies, trying to, trying to make it. And we're like down to buy, you know, we knew all these cookie orders were coming in. We're like, cool. If you can give us some cheap uh, sheet pans and rolling racks, we'll take them. So we actually went there to look at equipment to buy and his, you know, old POS systems and kitchenwares and so forth. And the space was stunning. It was huge. It, he had an incredible build out of the kitchen. And we just fell in love with it. And this would have been, I guess, in September or October uh, of 2017. And uh, we ended up saying, you know, uh, we will we'll take all your shape hands and all your rolling racks and all your kitchen equipment. We're like, but what are you doing with this space? And he said, you know, I, I you know, unfortunately, the concept didn't work. And he was sitting on this space. And we said, can we just take the entire space, actually, for the, the remainder of the next few months? And so we kind of like ended up subleasing our nomad location from him for, um, you know, for, for the holiday season, ultimately. And then we ended up loving it. We loved the neighborhood. We moved in. We made ourselves way too comfortable in there. So we just took over the lease and we opened up our uh, Mama Nomad location, which is like right, right by Flatiron, our 25th shop. That's so that's kind really of a, a that's fun a great, story. It's just like that. a great uh, serendipitous, you know. Absolutely. And still, that's one of our like top locations, too. It's a it's it's been a really great one for us. Love it. And if I'm not mistaken, 30 locations now, 28 in the US, right? Two in Canada yes. and Toronto and Montreal. Um, yeah. Every one of them company owned. But I know much of the growth has been has been capitalized by TriSpan, which is a London, New York based private equity firm. Um, could you talk a bit, I mean, obviously it sounded like you were doing a pretty amazing job kind of expanding these yourself without a huge capital partner. Obviously we don't need to go into like numbers or anything on like cash, but just thinking about when the right time was to bring on a private equity partner to really help you fuel the expansion and, and kind of why you did that. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we, we both saw so much more growth and so much more vision for the brand. There was much more demand for it. And we were just at a point where, you know, either we sit and we're comfortable and we, you know, continue on with our, our five stores that we had, or, you know, go big or go home. And, and, and we, uh, you know, we, we really kind of fuel it up and we had a few, um, you know, people coming to us looking to invest, really interested in the concept. Um, so we kind of went out there and on our roadshow and started, you know, shopping it around to a variety of different investors. Um, we, ended up, you know, narrowing it down to about three of them and, uh, you know, really wanting to kind of 
expand the brand in more locations throughout New York. And then we also for, you know, for growth and for future purposes, I think for us, you know, we're and like many other, you know, F&B restaurants um, that are here in the city, there's such a high density of people and traffic and turnover. And, you know, it's New York is a tough city, but at the same time, it's, it's an easy um, city from a, a traffic standpoint. And for us, we wanted to really see if we could be successful in other markets and, or if, you know, it was just a New York based concept. So we wanted to kind of take that leap. So we ended up um, like meeting with the variety of different investors. And uh, when we were down to top three, that ended up being March of 2020. And uh, then, of course, COVID hit, and we don't need to get into that. Everyone knows what happened to the the food and beverage industry. We were very fortunate. We were, um, you know, we we were still really able to maintain ourselves in our locations, and um, you know, still still survive ultimately. Unlike so many did throughout uh, the early months of the pandemic, we were fortunate that we had a really strong to-go business and, you know, New York people still need their lattes. We were, we were serving them out of windows. We transitioned our business into cookie dough. We were very lucky. We had a great e-com business built up in terms of shipping items as well. So we were able to survive it all. And TriSpan ended up, um, you know, I, I think seeing, seeing that and seeing the future and, and seeing the growth and, we uh they they hung on and they still wanted to partner with us and still wanted to invest with us and um you know we're we're so happy they did because we went from you know from the middle of the pandemic with six locations to what are we now two three years later having you know 30 locations and growing and in, in multiple cities as well it's it's remarkable um to your point you know we saw so much um we saw so many four wall businesses just not be able to withstand the pandemic. And I think to your point, you know, you guys did have a really strong D to C business, but there was something else in there that you did during COVID. I don't know if it was always the plan to, to create a cookbook, but I'm curious as to, you know, what the impetus of the cookbook was and was this just, you had more time on your hands during COVID or did you want to bring mom back into people's homes in a more spectacular way? Um, you know, I think it actually all fell into place so nicely. Um, we, you know, the cookbook was always a dream of mine. I think, you know, just with the expansion and, and the early growth stages, it was it was definitely a, a, a struggle to focus on it because I don't think people realize how much work and how much time actually go into to creating and writing a cookbook. Um, so I was, you know, it was a great opportunity that things really got quieter. I also, um, I also was pregnant at the time. Uh, and knowing that I was going to kind of stay at home more, I was expecting um, in that September, and I knew things were going to be quieter, and it was going to get slower for me, you know, physically as well, and I would be staying at home a little bit more. So I just kind of found it a great time to, to get down and then start start writing all these recipes and testing all these recipes. And we were fortunate that the whole testing situation really took place when COVID was at its peak. And and, uh, you know, my husband and I were you know, stuck at home like everyone else with nothing else to do. We had a, a newborn baby who was sleeping a lot, fortunately. And so we, we did a lot of baking um, and it was a it was a fun and difficult process, um, especially getting all the groceries uh, during that time. And, and, you know, we would make I remember one day we must have made like 
testing one of our cookie recipes, I believe it was, but people don't realize when you have a, a recipe in our restaurant, we're making, you know, our batches by, you know, the, the 50 dozen at a time. So it's not science and math that you can just, you know, re reduce all of the numbers and fractions to get to the perfect equation. You literally have to test that, you know, industrial style recipe 10 times before you can get it to an at home, you know, make 12 cookie kind of recipe. So there was one day where we were just, we were just drowning in baked goods. And of course we wanted to go give them to neighbors and no one wanted to touch anything. <laughs> there was like so much waste, um, you know, but it was, it was a great time to kind of, you know, to, to focus on that and do all of the writing and the testing. It was a, a really fun and long process, but we got it done. And I'm so proud of that baby that I had. Yeah. Um, well, I think having too many cookies is a, is a good problem to have. They like to say, um, I think one thing you've done so beautifully, and I'm curious if you have advice for either other founders that even just D2C businesses or that have other four wall businesses, but you've been able to scale with such authenticity of the brand, um, each location, you know, you feel like you're kind of walking into someone's living room or kitchen, um, the warmth that exudes from each counter and barista is, is really there. Even, even the Moynihan station, you know, you go up to the counter and you feel like you're kind of engulfed in this, in this Makes kitchen. So happy to hear that. You have no idea. That's music to my ears. <laughs> it's true. And I think, I mean, obviously it comes from your passion of interior design and event planning and crafting an experience for the consumer. But do you have any advice for either other founders or people creating businesses to to scale with that authenticity? Absolutely. And, and I want to say that was my biggest fear. And it still is to this day, honestly, um, growing because I think, you know, my mom was just built with so much soul and love and warmth and every little detail in our Soho location. I have a story about every single vintage plate that was in there at the beginning. They've broken them all since then, but had, you know, when they came from my grandmother's house or I bought it in Spain at a vintage sale. And I think that there was just so much love put into absolutely every single detail that my biggest fear in scaling. And even when we talked about, you know, getting investors and going to 30 locations and like, absolutely not. I, I did not want to do that. And I was so scared because those are all the details that make it so special. And it was, and it still currently is the biggest challenge for me is to keep that, that vibe and that soul of mama and that, that warmth that it creates alive. And, you know, I, I say this a lot to all of my team, um, you know, in, in training, there's, there's so many amazing coffee shops and cafes and restaurants and cookie shops in New York. Every single block, you know, I can tell you three other places within a, a five minute walk from every mama location that has amazing coffee and amazing food. And we're very fortunate to be, you know, in a city that has an abundance of that. But for me, it's not enough. What else? What else can we do to make it special? What else can make it that much more? And I really strive to kind of create a multi-sensory experience for our customer. And I don't want there only to be amazing food and amazing coffee, but I want it to be a memorable experience. I want you to come down and sit and eat on a plate that was on a beautiful pattern of blue and white china. That's something that your grandmother had. And it just sparks a beautiful memory of being with her. And, you know, I want you to not drink your coffee out of a boring, ugly cup with a logo on it. I want something that's, you know, beautiful. That'll make you take a picture and Instagram it. And, 
you know, the, the smell of the cookies in the shop is also another thing that's important. And, and when we did our commissary kitchen, that was one element that um, I stressed was I didn't want to lose that, that sensory experience. And so all of our doughs are made offsite in our commissary kitchen and all of the doughs are shipped to all of the stores. So we're always baking fresh on site. So you still have that fresh cookie. You still have that, um, you know, that amazing smell when you walk in. Uh, and there's still that like vibe and ambience. And I think customer service as well, you know, making sure the baristas know your name, making sure it feels like a warm and welcoming place, because I really think all of those are the key ingredients to kind of creating that neighborhood coffee shop uh, without becoming a chain, which is a word that scares me and I hate so much. And and anytime anyone refers to us as that, it just it just makes me cringe inside. Um, because I I really still want to be that cozy neighborhood, warm and welcoming shop. And you know, even from a design standpoint, you know, our you know, love them, love the guys at TriSpan, but you know, they're always like, let's just get one standard, you know, set of plates and a standard skew for the chairs. And and I'm like, I will never do that. I will shop every single night for hours on eBay trying to find the perfect mismatched vintage blue and white. And I'll spend my weekends on Craigslist and replacements. And like, there's, there's, I'm not giving into that. I think there are so many few things that really kind of keep that keep the charm of the space that regardless of how much we get I I will never let go of and I will retain because you know those those little antique elements um are are very important to me and and as as you can say which I I love that you used Monaghan as an example because that was the biggest challenge for me because you're literally in a food court and you're given these regulations of you have to have a black sign and it's going to be a shiny black tile and you know like there's so much you know red tape that's put up from a design perspective and everything was super modern and super clean and you have to kind of fit with the aesthetic so it's a fun challenge to think like how can I warm this up how can I make this pretty how can I make this feel you know a little a, a little bit cozier uh and we use a lot of florals we we have a variety of different you know different fun techniques that we use, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it, it has that same sense and feeling to you. It does. It does. And it's so clearly everything you said is just so clearly there. Um, it's, I mean, beyond belief, the each piece, each antique, everything. And, and I, and I love how important the details are to you because I think more founders, forget about those details. And it's the details at the end of the day that differentiate a good business from a great business. Absolutely. I think speaking on that too, uh, you know, from a, from a marketing standpoint, we're so fortunate to have social media. And back in 2014, you know, we, we don't realize, but Instagram was kind of like just starting and it was hardly a thing. And, you know, for us, the instant success we saw, it really kind of clicked with me is like, let's give people a reason to advertise for us for free. And if somebody, you know, has a orders a coffee in a plain white cup, you know, you're not going to take a picture of it. But if it's a hand painted cup that has beautiful florals and it matches your nails that day and, you know, it's, it has our logo on it. You want to give people these um, almost now I, I, you know, do it consciously thing like, let me give people these Instagrammable moments. And I, I was very cautious of that very early on when we had little, you know, rabbits as vases on the tables, you know, making sure my staff like think I'm crazy and 
you know, making sure that like every single plate, if somebody orders like an omelet with a toast and a coffee that you're not allowed to use the same pattern for the omelet and the toast plate. And <laughs> like, mind you, some of them are just like not, not listening to me anymore. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, those are like the little neurotic details that probably drive them crazy, but to me are, are super important and definitely much harder to scale. Um, but, you know, give them a reason to take a picture. If it's just plain food on a white plate, you know, no one's going to no one's going to be Instagramming that and advertising that for free for you. So, you know, pay attention to those details. I think that's the the wedding planner in me. That, oh, that it's it's funny. Out, neurotic wedding planner. <laughs> I'm planning my I'm planning my wedding right now and you sound like my wedding planner. So it's it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. Um if we think about the future of the business, wh- what what can we expect to see? Like, what's your dream of growth and what is like five years from now look like? Yeah, so I think definitely within um, other cities, we, uh, you know, mentioned, uh, we started in New York, Toronto, Montreal. Uh, DC was our next market that we opened up in. So we have three there right now and we are going to be opening a fourth one in DuPont Circle next week. Um, and then our next most exciting market that we're opening up in is Miami. So that um, is one that we you know, kind of did selfishly because we love it there. And I need an excuse to visit more often, but also I feel like it's a, you know, it's a unique concept. There's not much like us there. Um, I think that there's definitely a need for it. It's a, you know, a lot of uh, New Yorkers, you know, moved there during COVID. Uh, New York and, and Miami share very much the same clientele and quite a bit of synergy. So um, we're super excited to kind of take on South Florida as our next market. And then five years down the road, I think, you know, exploring other cities, we're really, you know, doing some traveling right now, entertaining what other cities those may be. Our concept is really built on going into a city with one commissary that will support five locations. So if we go somewhere, we really want to, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to kind of just have, you know, one in in North Carolina and one in Dallas. Um, I think we would want to kind of like find a neighborhood where we could, you know, set up set up shop from a commissary perspective and then and then grow uh, that way. So something with, you know, enough neighborhoods that would really support more than one location. Um, and then from a brand perspective, you know, I always built Mama as being more than just uh, four wall brick and mortar. Um, CPG is something that I, I am really excited and really passionate about. I would love to have a line of uh, baking mixes. I'd love to have a line of of more, more cookbooks. I, you know, we're, we right now from a brand perspective, we're really just toying with different product markets, um, seeing what works and what sticks. Because for me, it's not just going to be uh, a restaurant. You know, we're we're definitely you know growing the brand to be to be much more than that. Um, we're doing a lot of collaborations. We've done, you know, we did a fabulous collaboration with Lalo, you know, touching our toes into the the baby market, which was a huge success for us. Um, so I would love to kind of, you know, go a little bit deeper into that, especially, you know, with, with the name and the brand Mama, considering that is our customer. Um, I have a lot of fun ideas to kind of like grow and go in that direction. And myself having become a mother myself. Um, and then, you know, we we are just having fun kind of playing with different like product departments, like everything from, you know, we, we're doing our own granola. I'd love to get into dressings. I'd love to, 
you know, get into, um, you know, jams, having our own private label of that. So a little pantry section. I don't know, I have way too many dreams and way too many visions. <laughs> like I could go on and on in this conversation. Um, but you know, right now, taking exactly. over a grocery store, it sounds right? like. I know. We'll have a whole lifestyle. Right? It'll be a department store, actually. Um, speaking of which, Maison Mama is also part of part of a dream. So kind of having that, you know, whole like home style environment. Um, and hopefully we'll be chatting five years from now and I'll be, you know, well, I'll be telling you all about my Maison Mama and, and the variety of, of product lines that we have and the huge yeah, collection. That's what Il Buco did. They opened their Il Buco Vita, which it has a whole line of homeware and candles and cookware. and Absolutely. Tabletop is, it's crazy how many people every single day I get messages on where do you get your plates? Where do you get your, you know, your blue and white mismatched china? So that's something that I'm also looking into um, is, mm. is having that produced on our own. Um, but the CPG uh, market really intrigues me too, especially having the cookbook. I'm working on, um, I'm in early stages of a second cookbook as well right now, um, which is exciting. And uh, yeah, so going more into that market too. So I, there's, I, I am always a big thinker and, and have too many ideas. So <laughs> and you need no, to bring I, it down and focus on a, focus on a few things first, but five years is a long time. It. it was a I'm good, like, I opened 26 stores in five years. So no, a little bit. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I won't, I won't be surprised if all this comes, comes to life in five years. <laughs> there you go. Nice teaser for our listeners. So we like to ask all of our guests how they subscribe to wellness. So what are some things that you do on a daily, weekly basis to be able to show up for you, your family, the business, et cetera? Um, I think it's really prioritizing yourself. I think being a, a new mom, having two little ones, having a business, having you know close to a thousand employees now at you know, it can get very overwhelming. My husband and myself also, you know, co-own the business together. So we work together, um, which, you know, is, is great, but it's also, uh, you know, has its, has its downfalls in the sense that like, it never turns off. It's at home with us on the dinner table. It's not, you know, at nine to five that either of us can shut off. Um, so, you know, I think really taking that like personal time to, to make sure that, I'm being fulfilled. And I think, uh, you know, also when you're in this kind of industry and you're wearing so many hats and you're doing a little bit of everything, sometimes it can get very mundane and, and, um, you lose the joy in it. And so I feel like every you know six months, I, I need to kind of take that time and have that reality check and assessment of, of what am I doing? And I literally write down everything that I'm doing in the company and especially being in a company that's so quickly growing. Um, I'm, I'm at the luxury that I, you know, of course I'm, I'm always going to have to do the, the things that I don't like to do. It's, you know, you can't have the perfect world, but I, I think as we've grown, I've really kind of shaved off different roles and hired people to fulfill those roles. So it's kind of like writing down that list of, okay, what am I working on? What is my day-to-day spent doing? Do I genuinely enjoy doing? What am I doing that really adds value to the company that I should still continue to be doing? And kind of take that reassessment. Um, And that, you know, fuels me, I think, from a wellness perspective, personally, as well, because you know, with being a mom with two little children, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm happy doing what I do. And, you know, I, if I, 
I'm making a conscious effort to take time out of my day being with my children to go to work. So what I do at work either has got to be, you know, amazing and growing the company so we can all have a better future, or it's got to make me really happy. And I got to really love doing it. So those are the two things that I kind of like make sure that my list is composed of. Um, otherwise it's not worthwhile for me to be, you know, not with my children to be not at home you know, raising them and spending time with them. Yeah. Makes so much sense. Um, Alisa, this has been an amazing conversation. We love what you're building. Um, thank you so much for the time. Oh, well, thank you guys. I love chatting with you. Thank you. Hey listeners. I just wanted to quickly mention my favorite hydration supplement element. Hydration is a crucial part of life and it isn't just about drinking water. Being optimally hydrated is actually about optimizing your body's fluid ratios. This fluid balance depends on many factors, including the intake and excretion of electrolytes. Electrolytes are charged minerals that conduct electricity to power your nervous system. They also regulate hydration status by balancing fluids inside and outside your cells. Current science points to consuming four to six grams of sodium, three to 0.5 to five grams of potassium, and 400 to 600 milligrams of magnesium per day from diet and supplements for optimal health outcomes. It can be hard to consume these ranges from whole food diets, especially sodium. Element was formulated with a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Just as important as what is put in Element is what is left out. Dodgy ingredients and public health enemy number one, sugar. I've been consuming the product for about a year and absolutely love it. And if you want to get started today, you should go to drinkelement.com slash subscribe into wellness for a special introductory deal on your first order. That's drinkelement.com slash subscribe into wellness. You won't regret it. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness and we'll see you next time.